Ellen Stewart sat down with moderator David Diamond for a one-on-one interview in June of 1994. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. I'm David Diamond, the Executive Director of the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation, and I'm pleased and honored to welcome you here this afternoon for the ninth in our series of one-on-one seminars. This afternoon, our guest is Ellen Stewart of La Mama Experimental Theater Club. Very proud uh, to have Ellen with us this afternoon. The, I, uh, my first job in the theater in New York City was at La Mama, and I know a lot of people um, all over the world have started at La Mama. So it's a personal pleasure for me to have you with us this afternoon. Well, thank you. Um, let's start off. Tell me a little bit about your earliest interest in theater. My, my earliest interest in theater? Well, I didn't start La Mama because I had interest in theater. However, my earliest interest was that uh, some of my people were uh, in show business, the, my mama's sister, my uncles, did blackface, uh, tap dancing, uh, played the wild man in the circus, where you would throw them raw meat and hair all bushy and everything and down in a pit. And they would snarl and roll their eyes and jump around. And uh, my aunt was Little Egypt. She had, uh, she stood with legs together. Her body became a snake with the head coming out of the bosom. And she used to take one titty and roll it this way and one roll it that way. Um, the chorus girls, all these kind of things that perhaps many of you are not familiar with, but that uh, road circuit, the circus circuit, that's what I knew about theater. And what, um, what did lead you to start La Mama? Well, there was someone that was like a foster brother to me, Fred Lights, and some of you may know the name of Paul Foster. Back in uh, the early 60s, they both wanted to write plays. My brother had had a big disappointment on Broadway, and it had really embittered him. Uh, Paul Foster had never written a play, and he wanted to. And so my brother's experience had left him uh, with like a mental block. I tried to tell you in a hurry, but he wrote a play that was uh, called Samson and Lila D, was based on uh, Samson and Delilah, and uh, through a series of scenes, he met a producer, and they had something they called readings, we didn't know what that was, and from the readings, a lot of money was raised, and they raised enough money that uh, they could do a Broadway show. So as they went to Lena Horn, 
And Lena didn't think at that time it was very good for her image to be in a colored play by a colored playwright on Broadway. And they went to Eartha Kitt, and Eartha loved the idea, but she couldn't really sing without a microphone or being projected as a like. So they were looking desperately at all this money. And meanwhile, Carol Channing heard about this play, and she had done a gentleman prefer blondes. So she liked it, and she and her husband decided that this play did not have to be called Samson and uh, Lila B. I think they named it, renamed it The Vamp. Um, as the rehearsals uh, progressed, little by little they took my brother's rights away from him. The first being that they thought that it wasn't good for a colored play with Carol Channing's image. So they asked John Latouche, who had great success with The Golden Apple, if he would come in as my co-writer. And then they decided that they had a certain lifestyle that they must keep up with, and they needed a certain amount of money. So it was fixed so that they had all the money, and my brother didn't have anything. And then the next thing that they did was they decided it was better for all concerned that if his name did not appear at all. At which point, there were two brothers that my brother knew, the Shorter Ross. And one of them, and they were in show business, some of you might know the names that I speak about. One of them took Freddie, his name is Fred Lights, to the Dramatist Guild. And uh, there, it was decided, and that's how uh, Miles, um, Tonight, is it? I think was the one in charge then of the dramatist field, that no idea could be copyrighted, that any subject was in free domain, and any person could use the idea. And uh, John Latouche was told, Carol and her husband, and they had two weeks before they were going to open on Broadway, that they must write a play to the satisfaction of Mr. Tenike and the Dramatist Guild, that it was no longer my brother's play, but since it was based on Samson and Delilah, they too could base their play. And so they wrote The Vamp, which had huge headlines. It was the first 400,000 disaster on Broadway. Uh, it failed, but it did something terrible to my brother because he had had great great faith in the people, and they treated him so badly that he got a block. He couldn't write anymore anything. And he was very bitter and disillusioned. I got the idea that Paul Foster, who was studying to be a lawyer and very afraid of his parents, that for the both of them, we would start a little theater and it would be like playing house. I didn't know anything about theater. But they could write the plays, and our friends could be in them, and everybody lived happily ever after. So it was as simple as that. I rented this little basement on East 9th Street, and I thought I could take care of it because uh, I was an excellent designer in Couturier, 
And I had big following, Madison Avenue, Saxford Avenue, Anne Van Dale, and the senior committee, a lot of money. And I thought that uh, I would design clothing, I would sell them, because I could make anything. I used to make a coat in the night, and then I could take it on Madison Avenue and sell it for three or four hundred dollars the next day. And this is in the, you know, 60s. Mm-hmm. So the... With the first uh, de- black designer at Saks, is that right? Yes, in New York. <laughs> in fact, I was the first colored to be called Miss in the department stores in New York City because coloreds were not allowed to be called Miss. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> right. Okay. So that's how I started. We were in this little basement at 321 East 9th Street. Uh, about big enough for crowded 30 people, mm-hmm. and uh, which included a big coffee bar that we made out of an old shoeshine stand. Um, maybe David, you cannot remember, but the shoeshine stands used to be, have, be out of marble with brass feet. It's like somebody gave me one and we converted that. It took up most of the place. And that's how we began. How did you get the name La Mama? Well, everybody knows that. A lot of people know the story. In New York at that time, there existed something called the Landlord's Covenant. And this meant that any three buildings that were next to one another, the landlords could sign a covenant, which could be legally enforced. And this covenant stated that no Jew no Hispanic, and no Negro could live in those buildings. And La Mama was in the basement of a covenanted building. And so the people in the building did not want to live, as they said, with niggers. And they tried to get the landlord to put me out. But my building had been bought recently by a Mr. Stefan Slavotsky, who had come from the Ukraine, and he said he had fled from persecution. He would not persecute me. And he let me stay. Um, in an effort to get me out anyway, now I told you I was in fashion. And I knew a lot of models and the like at Women's Wear Daily. And I had lots of things to do there too. Was building this little theater in the basement that didn't have a ceiling and didn't have a floor. And many of the male models would come over in between gates and help me. And so this man came down this time, and it was very odd. He was not a young man, and he had a big red cravat. And he had a warrant for me for prostitution, because the people in the building said that a negress <laughs> had entertained 16 white men in five hours. (laughs) Well, he questioned us, and for the kids that were there then, and myself, so we were trying to build a little theater. And he had come from vaudeville, and when I told him my background was vaudeville, well, it was really, we, we were good friends. So he said, listen, I can help you out. If you become a restaurant, I will give you a license. And in order to be a restaurant, you just have to sell a cup of coffee. 
It's on that word is today. Now my nickname has been Mama for a long time. I jump quick to that. When I was at Saks Fifth Avenue, Saks Fifth Avenue had a quota that they took so many Jews each year uh, into the directly from Europe and as apprentices, and they gave them jobs. These people were able to come with a suitcase and five dollars to America. Now, I had my own atelier through Edith Lance's there on the fourth floor, and in Saxford Avenue, indeed, I was Miss Ellen, and I had 15 of these persons. They were from Czechoslovakia, from Poland, from Spain, all Jewish women, but all whom had worked in couturier, the very best of fashion. And these women were my assistants. No American women would work in my department because they did not want to work for a colored boss. However, these ladies all called me Mama, and that was, uh, and in fact it was Mama Schwartz, you know, that's black. But, and one German lady called me Mama Schwartz, and that stuck. And then the boys just called me Mama. So, now we're back into uh, talking to this man, and one said, Mama. And he wrote down Mama, and another one says, well, honey, we don't want Mama, we want Ma, Ma, Ma. So he wrote it down, and I got a little uh, license for to be a coffee house, and that's how we became Cafe La Mama. Okay? Yeah. What else would I mean? Uh, experimental theater club part, ETC, and the uh, dedicated to the playwright and all aspects of the theater. Did that come right away? Well, no, that was another experience. I was working for uh, Paul Yellen, that time in Divets, a Wisdom Children's Wear. And by then, we had moved away from 321 East 9th Street. I, I moved because the people in the building were taking sledgehammers and they were breaking up their own bathtubs and their toilets and the radiators. And then in those years, a landlord had to repair whatever it was. They were destroying the building because I was in. And I couldn't let Mrs. Slavotsky and his wife make that sacrifice. And we moved to 122nd Avenue. Now, I had uh, heard that uh, in order to be legal and to do what I was doing, there was such a thing as a coffee house license. In order to get a coffee house license, you had to be in a place that was in existence, in a commercial zone that had been a restaurant, preferably, or something like that. And at Fifth Street, where at Fourth Street, there was this place that had been the Zen Tea House, which had been a restaurant. It was for rent, and so I rented that, and I proceeded to try to get a license, which was so many stories, you know. Everything from a fake inspector from the building scene that my boss, Paul Yellen, lent me $400 to give to him so I would get a license, which didn't uh, at all materialize, and with really being harassed. Now, by along about that time, Ed Koch came on the horizon, 
and he was making his career in politics. In Mos the Moses, uh, the Commissioner Moses, was cleaning up New York for the World's Fair. And the person that they were cleaning up was the village, but we weren't the village at that time. We were just the Lower East Side, and Ed Koch would have me arrested all the time. Now, probably you don't know, but if you have three convictions in the city of New York, you become a felon, and you can't really do anything. I, I've been in the women's penitentiary over there. It used to be on Sixth Avenue many times, you know. With, I learned to, to change my name. And the fire department would come, and finally they came, and they sealed up the doors to come in. This was at 82 Second Avenue. I got a call, and this is really the truth, on my job one day, and somebody said to me, Ellen Stewart, I want you to become a corporation. I want you to do this immediate. He told me, you must get a, a lawyer where the papers were supposed to go, and he would know if I did this, and hung up, said it would help me. So there was a lovely lawyer who would come to the mama, his name was Carl Felsenfeld, and he proceeded to incorporate us. He did not want to use the name La Mama, but I refused to change it. And we got our corporation papers the day that we got the corporation. See? I got a phone call and it said, Ellen Stewart, tonight at such and such a time, the fire trucks will come and will unseal your doors. You must become a private club. You must have bona fide membership. You cannot charge admission. You will have to collect dues, and you'll be all right. And always remember that I am watching over you. I never knew who that was, but sure enough, the fire trucks came in very serious He took the seals off the door, and we were able to function. Did you ever find out who it was? No, but in the meanwhile, my building was owned by a very famous rabbi here, and I don't think I will get into that. But since somehow I had this magic that somebody could tell me what to do and the fire trucks came, he got the idea that I could get a liquor license, uh, which he wanted for the space that I was in. And I refused. Uh, Allen Ginsberg went and tried to talk with him but he just wanted this liquor license. I wouldn't get it. So I came from work, and he had taken out the whole back wall of my place on the second floor. Mm -hmm. If you can envision that, there was no wall. <laughs> so I had to get uh, out of there. But that's where the Lamama ETC, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Lamama Experimental Theater Club dedicated to the playwright, all aspects of the theater. And I now will collect the dues. And which... <laughs> and you always ring the bell, right? Eh? I will ring the bell, and then I will go from person to person, and our dues were $1 when you came, 
And for that month, you could see everything that we were doing for that same dollar. We, and you know, uh, NBC um, videotaped that. And so you have me on video saying, I will now collect the dues. We still have it in the archives. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the people who um, are members of the SDC Foundation and are here today are directors and choreographers. You didn't start out as a director, uh, and but over over time you started to direct uh, these kind of epic um, folk operas, I guess you might call them, productions. What? Uh, how did you get in, involved in that? Were there some people that influenced you strongly? And no, 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 no. How did that happen? Well, you know, I always had epic ideas <laughs> myself. Okay, and um, well, I just did. I always, I never liked the so-called contemporary theater that one sees uh, on a proscenium stage, and you, uh, you know, you come from here and come from there, you come from there. But I like, like when it can come from many different places and in a large space. And I first got the, really got the idea when I was in Lebanon in 1972, and I saw, I don't know how many of you know, but the ruins there, Baalbek, are greater than any ruins that you would see in Greece. And Andrei Sherban and Elizabeth Sredos had made Medea, and we were playing in, in um, Paris. But I had connections in Lebanon because Peter Burke and Mama were the first judges, or the judges of the first Arab playwriting contest. And so the first prize went to Egypt and the second prize went to Lebanon. And that's why I had occasion to visit Beirut. And when I was there, I saw these magnificent ruins. Didn't get out of my mind. When we were in Paris then, I got the idea that we should play in those rooms. So I went to, I left Paris, came over to Beirut, asked the people if we could play. They said yes. I went back, I got Andre, I brought him to Lebanon, showed him this ruin, and we sort of like figured out to play this epic scene. He and Elizabeth, and you know, did an incredible job. If you can imagine playing the parapets of these ruins, playing in the still existing palace of Dionysos, uh, it is indescribed. With the sun to play with you, with the moon, all of these incredible scenes. And so, Ramana, in that sense, has been epic ever since. Now, for my part in doing actual directing, it is only been when it was necessary. When we did Cotton Club first in 74, I staged that because I knew how to stage the original Cotton Club. And some years before, when I was very young, I had run a nightclub. I knew all about tap dancing. Um, I knew all about that. And so with that, 
I brought back the hoofers and we did Cotton Club with the first staging. And I think that's the first thing that I did myself. See, the next thing that I did was uh, uh, in uh, Salzburg. Something outside in uh, Max uh, Reinhardt's garden. A lot of the, the plays that you directed are based on um, Greek myths or other folk stories. Right. Right? What, what, what stories attract you? What attracts you about the stories? Is it Well, anything that will lend itself to music without being a musical. You know? And you write all the music yourself. Yeah, I write all the music. And yeah. all the, uh, Many people don't know I, I write music, but I do write. Now everybody mm -hmm. knows. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, when you're developing these pieces, do you develop them yourself in advance, or do you work with a company of actors and develop it with the actors? No, it doesn't go like that at all. You know, Brendan Gill is the one that invited me to Salzburg, to the Salzburg seminar. Uh, sort of like this kind of thing, except you're there for seven days, and you talk to other persons, your peers, but who have come to listen to you for seven days. They come from all over the world, and at that time they may have six or seven of us to talk to as many persons that have come. And when you come, you sign up for the person that you want to be with. Now, Brendan invited me to this, and he told me he wanted me to shake it up. <laughs> Now, I don't know how to talk to people. I don't know this at all. And uh, I said, well, I'm not going to talk. I will show you what I think can be interesting. So we did uh, Romeo and Juliet in eight days, um, using all of the languages of the persons present. Um, there were 18 different languages. Not by politics, but it just happened. The most beautiful person and the most young person there was from Israel, and so she became Julia. And the most beautiful boy was Arab, and he came from Malta. And so I had an Arab Romeo and an Israeli uh, Juliet. And um, I tell you, one of the most beautiful sounds, and if you could hear it, when the language is choreographed and with the music that we improvise from garden rakes and the garden machinery, from the pots and pans in the kitchen, from stones, you know, stones make incredible sound. And to hear them speak to one another, he in Arabic and she in uh, Hebrew, and the way that they made love, we didn't do it on a balcony. Instead, she stole out in the night to a beautiful statue of Aphrodite. And um, the person who was uh, the friar made the marriage was from Israel. And he read from the Torah, but he read over a huge statue of Poseidon that was in a beautiful pool. And he used um, flower, long, beautiful flower branches. So it became like a very ancient, ancient ritual. Uh, and the Torah 
in which he read, and we made music from the water and the like and some other instruments. It was just gorgeous. But anyway, it made a beautiful performance. I, I hope, I just wanted to know how much it meant to me, and I was very surprised when Brendan Gill wrote his book just a few years ago. I was surprised he dedicated a book a whole chapter in his book about this performance. But on on the other side, the Germans wrote a book about it too and about the different scenes. They gave Andrei Scherban a half a page and they gave Alan Schneider a half a page and they gave your mother 11. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You've traveled all over the world and and Mm -hmm. done theater and created La Mama theaters all over the world. How did that start? Did you um, have an interest in travel, or did somebody come to you and say, please come to my country or work No. There? How did that happen? It was very simple. You see, my mother and my father always taught me that whatever you want to do, you must do it. And you don't ask other people, you know. So, here I have, I thought, all these wonderful, gifted, young playwrights, and with the exception of Jerry Tolmer, who would come every now and then to La Mama to see our plays, critics wouldn't come. For one thing, they didn't want to come down in a basement, and they didn't want to come upstairs over a cleaning shop. And the general opinion was that Lanford Wilson and Sam Shepard, Paul Foster, people like that, Edwin Kennedy, they were not playwrights. They were more or less like a a waste of time. But I thought that their plays should be published. There was William Hoffman. I mean, so many of them. And I would send the text to the publishers. I'd find out who the publishers were. They would send them back, and they said they didn't read anything if they didn't have a critique. Am I talking too long? No, no. Huh? No. Very interesting. <laughs> all right, because it gets all involved, because I have to go back here to tell you that, that this is this. Okay, Tom Iron, and you must know Tom Iron. Tom Iron wrote a play called The White Whore and the Good Player. And the two girls who played that play had a chance to go to Paris in 1964. Um, and they played this play at the English the then existing English bookstore, uh, and the critics came to see it on the night of a great electrical strike in Paris. They came with candlelight through the streets to see our play and to write a review about it. That's this step. At the same time, in Bogota, a group of students were doing pulp forces threw off of the bridge, which became Caviva El Puente, which won a prize, which was to go to Erlang in Germany, and we managed to swing that. The artists in Bogota, uh, Botero, Negret, very famous people now, you know, but they auctioned their paintings and sculptures, got tickets for about 18 people, uh, who got as far as... Uh, Florida on the military planes, and then we got a bus to New York, and everybody stayed by me, and my boss rented the Sheridan Square Theater, 
and we played for one night in Spanish, Cavida Puente, which was the first Spanish language performance in New York. And then they went on to Germany, where some people in Denmark saw the play, called me and asked if I have any more plays like that. And I said, yes. And could they do them? I said, if you can get some critiques. And so that, that gave a Danish uh, connection. In the meanwhile, with Mary Claire and Jacqueline being in Paris, they had gotten in touch with David Davies at the American Center. And there was a young Frenchman named Daniel Maroc who had come to us the year before. And the three of them told me they thought if I would come to Paris, I could get, maybe we could get the American Center to use it for a theater, which I did. And so that is how we made the American Center Boulevard Respire, and it's not there anymore, it's a new location. But we were actually the ones who made that theater in Paris. Most people don't know that, and Philip Pillsbury, who got it later, has never, ever acknowledged our existence. However, I got 22 plays, two directors. I asked Tom O'Horgan, and I asked Ross Alexander, 14 actors, if they would go to Paris, and through my friend Ruth York, and through Jens Ocken in Denmark, uh, Elsa Gress, whom I met in Denmark, I rented a little theater called Comedia Husset, and the plan was that eight people would play in Denmark, eight people would play in Paris, and we would get critiques, we would change places, and we'd bring all these critiques back to New York, and we're gonna get those plays published. Okay? So that's why we went. Well, if you can imagine, we opened the American Center with America Horror, which now, by Jean-Claude Van Italy, which is now called Motel, but at that time it was just the one play, America Horror. And David Davis gave me 24 hours to get out of Paris because I had put pornography in the American Center. Well, you know, it calls for a huge phallus to be drawn and destructive and four-letter words to be written by the actors. And this is in 65 in Paris, if you can imagine. Um, Bob, Robert Wilson, who was in La Mama at that time, made the big puppets that were used in the performance. And I got out. I left, I think, in a couple of days with the dolls on a freight train to Paris. I got them to let me ride in the freight because I didn't have enough money to have a regular ticket took the dolls to Copenhagen, and we played in the Comédie Husset, you see. Um, he forgave us and let us come back. But that established the American Center in Paris. That established La Mama in Denmark. We didn't get good critiques in Paris, and in Denmark, the critics wrote, they didn't know what we were doing. They didn't know what we were saying. Our actors certainly did not know how to speak, did not know how to act. However, we had a kind of energy that their actors didn't have, and that everything should be done to encourage La Mama 
to come back. So we've been going to Europe every year since, many, many different countries, and that's why we went. And you also go to Asia and Africa and, right. and all, yes. all around the world. Well, it was a kind of a thing, you know, I had no plays from Korea in 62 by 64, uh, plays from Peru, from Ecuador, from uh, Colombia, um, by 66, plays from uh, India, from Bombay mm-hmm. and Delhi, uh, plays from Japan, and it just sort of like made itself, you see. Besides, I had an ongoing exchange between Paris, between Denmark, and by 66, we were in Holland, and we were in England, and we were in Germany, and 67, by 67, we were also in Italy and in Austria. So it didn't take long until we were just like everywhere, which still exists until today. I tried to be as short as possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I have a lot more questions, but I'm sure there are people out there that have questions yes. too. So I can kind of see, so if you raise your hands, I'll um, point to people. Anybody have any questions for Alan at this point? Oh, okay, right there, yeah. Who do you work with? Do you have any Well, we really started with Andre and Elizabeth when we did the Greek trilogy, which by now has, I'm told, become one of the classical performances of all times. And these uh, plays began with Medea. All right. Now, for a long time, uh, I wanted very much that a colored actress or actor would play in something, you know, without a bandana on their head or without being a prostitute or a drug addict or a maid, you know, the cleaning woman, the kinds of things, the roles that a colored could get. And Andre Sherban and Elizabeth Suedos are beautiful people, and they decided to create Medea. Uh, Medea would be done in English, they thought at first, but English didn't work, and so they finally landed on uh, ancient Greek, and the role was created for a beautiful actress named Betty White, a colored actress. Um, she got a call to go into a professional show right in the middle of the work that we were doing, and so she was replaced by Priscilla Smith, whom many people know from having performed that role. But Medea in itself was the thing that Andre thought would be a good way to introduce or to create a role that would be beautiful for a colored and that would not have any particular kind of racial overtones in the life. So that's how that began. However, we played Medea in Europe very successfully and so successful that in France, we were commissioned to do another classic 
which would open the festival of Bordeaux. And Electra was the piece that was selected, and that's how Electra was created, was from that commission. And after that, we were supposed to work in uh, Brazil, and the Trojan women were supposed to uh, be created there. However, it didn't work out, and Andre and Elizabeth came back to New York, and they created the Trojan women. So this is how, and they became in themselves a trilogy. Does that explain? Then later years, in fact in 85, these plays were begun to be created, 72, 73, 74. Uh, in 85, I got a commission from the Greek government to do a Greek piece, and I work a lot with uh, Japanese actors, and some of you may know Tanaka Min, I don't know if you have seen him. So I created my own uh, Oedipus myth, and I called it Mythos Oedipo, to go to the Festival of Athens to play in Delphi with Min Tanaka playing uh, Oedipo. I was always fascinated and wanted to know very much why was Oedipo condemned to murder his father? Uh, why was he condemned to marry his mother? What was this really all about? Because most times when you see Oedipus, he begins when he's an old man, or if he's not an old man, he's about to be an old man, and he marries a woman who is his mother who is really old, and, uh, it, and he dies, and he's buried in Athens uh, through Thesus. I did some research in Greece, and I learned that in all probability, Yocasta was perhaps 11 years old, at the most 12 when she married Laius. I also learned that uh, Laius had been sent from Thebes to Peloponnesia to be with King Pelops and his wife, Hippodomea, because Thebes was at war, and he was sent there to be in safe keeping. His father, Lamedacus, sent him there. While he was there, the wife, of Pelops was celebrating Hera, the goddess Hera, and um, with the dance of the horse. Tanaka Min created an incredible dance for that. Um, and within this dance, she tried to get her husband to, this is my story, you know, she tried to get her husband to name one of her two sons to be his heir. He had a son by another lesser wife named Chrysippus, and he was going to name him the heir. Laius seduces Chrysippus while this dance is going on, which is actually an orgy. All of the dancers have huge phallus, and they are asking for procreation and the like. 
And this is all with music, and it's all done in ancient Greek, and all the Greek is sung. Pelops condemns liars, I learned. I could have three choices from the research. Either he stoned them to death, stoned his son to death, or he banished his son, or he let his son go away with liars. So I took that. Liars and Chrysippus return to Thebes, and as they near Thebes, they are told, they see that the father Labdacus has died, and Laius becomes king, at which time he is forced to marry uh, Yocasta. Within my piece, he never loves Yocasta. He never makes love to her. But you do see that he makes love to Chrysippus. Chrysippus, in one of their love-making times, is slain by Hippodamea and her two sons. After which, uh, the people in the town ask Laius and Yocasta to give them a child. Laius is unable to be with the woman. They go to the oracle. She tells them they have an orgy in her honor. He can do this, but the child may be a girl or a boy. And uh, the story more or less follows its same after that. They consummate, they have a baby boy who is not killed, who later grows up and he kills his father. He takes Yocasta after having answered the Sphinx as his wife. She is a beautiful, he's 18 and she's 29. She's a gorgeous woman and he's a gorgeous man and I show that too. Okay? <laughs> All right. Yes. In Chicago. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, there, I haven't been in Paris that much. I was in Paris in, um, I guess, in, in 93, I think it was 93, because I was commissioned to do something that was called a healing uh, through the Ministry of Paris and Sharif Kazadar. This meant that I had to put together, I think it was 18 different religions with 300 persons to be performed in the Parthenon, which is the most holy place in Paris. And this was called a night of healing. And it was done the eve of, uh, just before Rosh Hashanah. And I, I managed to do this it was quite, quite beautiful with uh, so many different religions. There was the Yoruba, 
there was Buddhism, Hinduism, Catholicism, uh, the Russian Orthodox, singers uh, from Lithuania, from uh, Greece, from Germany, the Episcopalian, I, uh, the Armenian, so many, many uh, things. But I hadn't done anything there for years before, and that's the only thing that I have done recently, so I'm not at all familiar with what is Paris now. You have um, um, created a home for artists in Italy, in, mm -hmm. uh, in Umbria, right outside Spoleto. What, um, what, what did you do that for? What do you want to do there? Uh, well, I was very fortunate in 1985 to win the MacArthur Genius Award, and I took the money, and I, I thought, now this money came to me, but a lot of people helped me do it, I wanted to share it, and I've always wanted to have a place or to make a way by which as many persons as possible, young artists can come to Europe or to go to Asia. Or I just think that it is the best thing for the development particularly of the American artists because i found, I think, that the American artist has so little chance really to be an artist. He's so insular. He's St. Louis, he's Denver, he's Californian, but he's never Paris, he's never Rome. He doesn't know what Berlin is. He hasn't got a clue about London. And I think this is so important for artistic development. So, I bought an old ruin in Italy, and I've been slowly making that into an artist's residence. Uh, it's taken a long time, but for the past four years we've been using it, and we make a project each summer, and many people come from all over the world, and this is what we do, and this is what I hope we can still do. Yeah. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to watch you work there last summer uh, doing the Romeo and Juliet, yeah. and that was a production that you had also done uh, well, in I the had, United States, right. but then you I translated it to Italian. Right. Well, I translated it to... Italian, and I made uh, music on instruments rather than on the stones and the garden instruments and the like. Right. Made it into a kind of folk opera. Mm -hmm. And it was performed in Perugia outdoors, yes. right? Mm -hmm. And what right. will you be doing there this summer? Well, this summer, a young Turkish director um, who, with whom I've been working a few years, he's going to do a piece. Uh, a very beautiful story, and in this piece, some people from New York, some artists from New York are coming, some from London, some from Italy, and some from Turkey, and uh, they're going to make this piece. And it will be performed in a place in Spoleto that's called Villa Redenta, which is a beautiful, beautiful outside environment. It's a beautiful story of what he's going to do, uh, music will be composed by Genji Ito, and we'll start from scratch with that. I want to tell you what the story. The story is a Turkish uh, story writer, a storyteller, and he tells the story of a man, a young man, who he's all around him are wars and oppression and sadness. It is very beautiful 
and they build a home. And uh, but when they do this, they don't know that they have gone come into the holy land of the deer. And in their building their home, they destroyed a large part of that area. And the deer have put a curse on them. They have a beautiful young son who plays with a young deer. They fall in love with one another. And they love one another so much until the deer can become a human being. And she becomes a beautiful woman. And they marry. And this is the second generation. However, they cannot have children. So she goes to the soothsayer and she is asking what could she do to become human enough to bear a child for her husband because he was pining away there would be no child. And so the soothsayer told her there's only two things that are human about you and that is your, they are your eyes. And if you will take your eyes out and leave them in a certain place, you will become with child and you will have two children. She loved her husband so much she took her eyes out and she had two boys, but her husband had loved her most for her eyes. And when she took them, he didn't love her anymore. He couldn't love her anymore. Like, And so she had this terrible grief, which was a part of the curse of the deer. The boys grow up, and one marries, and another one, and he goes off to seek his fortune for his young bride, and he leaves his bride in the keeping of his brother. The brother sleeps with the bride, they fall in love with one another, and when her husband returns, the two boys fight until the death, kill one another, and that's the end of the story. But the deer are all around, and they know that the curse has been fulfilled. So this wow, is going to be a great story. Huh? That's a great story. Yeah. It's going to be. A- it's going to be done with it's an incredible designer, costume designer who is coming and he's going to make all the costumes, make gorgeous costumes. And we'll have uh, huge masks and puppets. And Genji Ito is Japanese, he makes the music, and we'll see what that's going to be. Be about 20 people in the play. How would, um, just before we get to other questions, how would uh, directors and choreographers who are interested in Working at La Mama or working in Umbria, get that opportunity. Well, you know, we have a lot, but we don't have any money. So we can't pay people to come and be with us or the like. We just simply don't have the money. But if you want to come and be with us, you can. We don't read resumes and we never have. And you know, we do beautiful work at La Mama. We're very fortunate. There's always a little money, but not very much. Just come, just come with your uh, with your heart. And, that's right. Uh, and be there. Well, that's great. Yes. Uh, what language is this play going to be? In Turkish. Jewish. Turkish. But you know. That led to my other question is. But we do things. Doing it in any language or always English? Or? No, dear. English is not the beginning and the ending of us. Our whole work is 
to try if we do use English, or whatever language we're using, that we use that language, but that we try to go beyond the language in a visual sense, so that whatever we're doing will be universal in its aspects, that you might not understand everything, but there's a kind of visceral pleasure that you will get from what you see, which I think is very important. You know, the thing that I learned in 1965, and that lesson I have never forgotten, were 22 plays, both in Paris and in Denmark, and the plays that the people seemed to respond to were the ones that were visual and that had music and movement in the right. And the plays that just talked, they didn't work. And so we went every year, and every year we tried to make our work so that it had this appeal. I think the definitive thing about that was, you know, when Tom O'Corgan did Hair for Broadway, that was all Lamana staging. And you know, that staging reached out to the whole world. Uh, it had its message, but many times people didn't even know what the message was. But the way that it was staged, it was like it was a kind of emancipation of the spirit and uh, contact. We tried as best we could to do our work following along these, these lines. Other Not questions? It, huh? Are there other questions? Yes, Bob. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Mickey? I have a bunch of questions, <clears throat> and I've just heard the explanation about it. I've gone from the Mama Theater to the Ellen, it's almost like reading my mind. I enjoy it so much. Because it isn't language, it's just, it feels, it ain't sense everything. Recently, I saw a picture of that from Italy, and I think they were half a dozen words that they were just walked out of there, understanding the feeling. And this is, they make sure it's out. It's just something that is very spiritual, and very meaningful, and whatever country it comes from, it reaches a different other theater to them. Thank you. Yes, do you have a question? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, no, I was. I wanted to ask you the Shabon fragments of the trilogy. Is that was that uh, is that on tape? One, I never saw. It. We have it on tape in our archive. It's in the archive. Well, now, but you have to always say it is not Shabon's trilogy. It's Shabon Suedos, Elizabeth Suedos. Did 50% of that work. Andre did the staging. Elizabeth Suedos made all of the music, all of the sounds that you hear, which are so important. I mean, the language, all of that was from Elizabeth. So it was, it's a Sherman Suedos production, and it's because he's SE and she's SW that I say it in that order. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you come to, see, we have an archive, you know, because like a pot rack, with as many times as I went to jail and as many times as I had to move, I would stuff stuff in shopping bags and I kept it. 
And we have things that nobody has. Um, really a history from 61. The Library of Performing Arts has some scenes, but nobody has what we have. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know about, I was born in Chicago, but I don't know anything about it. I have been here since 1950, and I've been in Chicago, I think, maybe five or six times, and that's 44 years. So I can't tell you anything about Chicago. Yes? Yes. From time to time... Sometimes we have workshops. It just depends. Uh, not often, but we do have workshops. And uh, sometimes people advertise in that stage, but it is not often. Generally, it's noticed it's just inside our theater. And uh, so you have to come to the theater. Right, and word of mouth. Yeah. What um, projects are you working on uh, currently? Have anything coming up? Well, you know, we're about to close now. Uh, our last season. performance will be the 26th, June 26th, opening uh, on stage now. It's a group from uh, the American Ukrainian group with whom I'm working. And they are on stage uh, with a play that we premiered in Lviv in the Ukraine, and it has come here now. Um, next week we have a dance program with a choreographer from Spain. Um, and then our last week, which is the Gay Pride Week, uh, the games, and so like we have. Uh, Troop of uh, gay actors from Japan, from Tokyo, who played here 20 years ago, and they're going to come to help us celebrate our own kind of gay games. And with that, we're going to close. Right. We begin in uh, September 22nd, and the troop that I work with in Hong Kong are going to open our season um, with a dance theater piece that's based on uh, the erotica of China 400 years ago. Uh, mm. a memorial service for classmate Stephen Key. Stephen Key? Yes. I didn't know.
All right. Yes. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, yes. I'd like to ask you about your funding issues. Uh, it seems to me I've read somewhere in the last year that you were in great fear of Lamama closing. Not the last year. Years. Huh? Years. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it was. Was it a crisis you uh, got over, or uh, is it always a crisis? Well, we're always in crisis, but we were in severe crisis at that time. Uh, and that was, well, it's more than two years ago when you read about that. It's a little over two years ago, I guess three. Uh, we were $600,000 in debt, uh, and everybody was foreclosing. I didn't see any way out. Uh, several newspapers wrote about our dilemma, and people sent us money from New, from New York, from California, and from many different parts of the world. And we managed to do something about that deficit. And we have now whittled the deficit down to $100,000, which is still in crisis, but it's a long way from $600,000. Anybody else? Any other questions? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I didn't see. Please. Uh, we're fighting very hard here these days to turn into uh, ethnically diverse and multicultural world. But you seem to have been with the past 30 odd years. How is that? Now, wait a moment. Andre the Shields, <laughs> you're like born in the mama. <laughs> And you can tell everybody what we do. I mean, you are a part of us. You know everything that we do. So why do you ask that question? Or do you want to talk? Why don't you talk about it a little bit? That's It's a give and take proposition, I think. I think I was someplace, uh, and I made the statement, Andre, that uh, ethnic diversity, for instance, in the Philadelphia story, that I wouldn't buy that because I don't think that it is and can be true to the playwright's intent. However, if we are, you know, what happens in America is that 
we are so bound down to the Philadelphia story, I'm using that as an example, that our theater never goes beyond its horizon. And what we do is always another Philadelphia story. What happens in America is that we limit ourselves and we don't try to explore the whole area of the arts as we know it so that there can be this so-called ethnic diversity. You see, what happened for me at La Mama is stories like the Philadelphia story, and you know that, Andre, not my cup of tea. I don't like contemporary theater. Mm -hmm. I don't like that sitting and talking and one-on-one -on -one and how well you speak. It is not for me. So therefore, at La Mama, we try to do things that are universal in its appeal. And that is to please me. I mean, there is no color for the, for the myths for so many things that are very beautiful in theater. I don't have any color line. But theater and what you must do, you have got to have a visceral contact and I go back to the Philadelphia story for what it stands for, the mainline Philadelphian person. I can't see that as a black and white protagonist because it just doesn't fit. But there are so many other things that do. I don't know if that answers. And so I tried to tell you that in 1962, the Koreans were in Mama. In 1964, the South Americans were in La Mama. In 1965, the East Indians were in La Mama. 66, the Japanese. By 66, the French and the Danish. By 67, the Germans, the English, the everybody, the everybody, the everybody. We had wonderful people from Africa, Duraladipo, I have worked in 17 different countries with the dancers and the storytellers from Zaire, the great, great, incredible people from Lumumbasa in uh, Zaire. I've worked in Ethiopia. I have just come back two months ago. I was in the Cameroon. But in all that work, and in all of that kind of work, it can be everybody in there but not in Philadelphia story. And so our work is in this kind of scene. You will see when we have dance or whatever we're doing, Andre, you know, of what we do, it does not have set color. And I think you have learned well, because everything that you do reflects Lomama's philosophy. And I'm very proud of that. So why don't you say how you do it? Sorry. I guess that's me leaning. <laughs> Andre, so now the last piece that you did, Lonnie's piece, I just tell that was black and white and white and black and Chinese and every other thing. How did you do that? Now you tell me. But just tell how you did it.
Okay. And that's the answer for that. For me, you know. But I think as long as we insist on being American and writing for the so-called thing Americana for Americans, one must only is remember that Americans sit in different little slots and they write for different little compartments. Uh, and this is true for the black American. And you know, I work, I started La Mama Chinatown, and it is why we have Asian theater in America today. Um, I've gotten my way with them, so to speak, every one of them. Uh, those troops, they have whites, blacks, and Asians in their troops. And the works that they do can embrace all those different persons. But our big problem is the so-called American American, and that's the white American. Who writes for the white American? And with what he's writing, anything else just doesn't fit. And that's why his work is so limited. It is never as rich as the others, and it is limited with its audience. As well. Mm. Yes. Right. Yeah, I'd like to reflect on something that I think very well. I think it's very ironic that uh, now it's very easy to say that it must be easy for the Lamas to not be visible in multicultural dancing years ago, but it wasn't always easy for the Lamas because now, although it's very trendy and fashionable to be multicultural, in other days it wasn't. And we were penalized a great deal in those days because then the funders. But you know, it's a funny thing. The Carter administration cut our funding completely because they said that was not American. And that uh, the National Endowment said that the monies that they gave were for Americans doing Americana, for Americans, with Americans, by Americans, to Americans. That this was not censorship that they funded what they liked, and they did not like La Mama because La Mama was not American. My funds were restored, believe it or not, by the Reagan administration, which, for whatever you want, but we were severely punished. And not only that, many times I have been called in and told that why don't I do more for my race that I could be funded differently. Why don't I do more the so-called American playwrights with what they are writing now? 
I could be funded more. But that is just not, I think, in world terms. And I think that we are one race and everybody is in that race. And I do believe that if indeed we had come from the atom, and that the atom was split many, many times, and if the quantum theory and physics holds true, that every part of the whole is the whole, and the whole is every part, and all of us are that same atom. And therefore, we are not any different, and we can never be anything but that. And one day, we are going to learn to trust what is genetically bound and resident within us so that we can be in tune with the world, the earth, the moon, the sky, the stars, the universe. I think I talked enough. Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.